0: When I first started covering it, it was it was pretty much a a baseball circuit where teams played to win and managed to win. And then, you know, when clubs get new general managers at the very top, their philosophies change. So then the style of baseball changes and uh, becomes more about development and not so much winning.
1: Howdy and welcome back to the Pioneer League Podcast. I'm your host, David Graff. It's another great episode today. We have Mike Schurding, who's the senior sports writer at the Billings Gazette and 406MTSports.com. He's been around the Pioneer League for a long, long time. He actually grew up going to games as a kid. That's how far back he goes with the Pioneer League. He's been covering the league for almost 20 years, covering the Billings Mustangs specifically for almost 20 years. And so we talked about his experience covering the Billings Mustangs and how he's seen the league evolve over the past 20 years or so. So we dove into all of that. It's a great time. This is almost a 30 minute interview. There really has been a lot of growth in the league, some good, some bad. But the one thing that still really remains, no matter how much the time or the given year, there always seems to be a lot of talent that comes through the Pioneer League each year, whether it's on the team in your town or visiting teams. Mike talks about all of that. We also talked about what happens to the Billings community if the Pioneer League ceases to exist. The Mustangs are an institution in billings so it would be devastating to see them go away and lose all of the history that they've built they've been connected to the cincinnati reds organization for decades now so it would just be incredibly disappointing to see all that go away if it doesn't return in 2021 so without further ado billings gazette And 406mtsports.com, senior sports writer, Mike Scherding. Happy now to be joined by Mike Scherding, who's been a sports writer at the Billings Gazette since late 2000 and has been covering the Pioneer League since the summer of 2001. Mike, how are you today? Oh, I'm
0: doing pretty well. How about yourself?
1: I can't complain. It's another beautiful day in Montana. Yeah, it's uh, after after the rain. It's nice to get some sunshine. So exactly. Well, I want to start with simply, what's it like to cover the Pioneer League? Well,
0: um, it's been it's been great. I mean, it's it's gone from when I first started covering it. It was it was pretty much a, a baseball circuit where teams played to win and managed to win, and then. Um, you know, when clubs get new general managers at the very top, their philosophies change. Um, and so then the style of baseball changes and it uh, becomes more about development and not so much winning. Um, so you, you run the gamut. And it's, um, it's interesting to, to look back on players who have, who have come and gone, and, and sometimes you don't even realize you saw them play. And I'm speaking mostly of, of visiting teams. Um because sometimes you're not aware of of who these guys are until, you know, six years later they show up in the big leagues and you kinda thumb through some of your stuff and you're like, Wow, he, he played here for a few days, you know, as a visiting team. So um I don't know. I've I've enjoyed it. It's been great.
1: You started covering the Pioneer League in the summer of two thousand one. What was your first impression?
0: Well, I, I grew up in, in Glendale, which is about 225 miles east of Billings. And so I grew up reading the Gazette and reading about the Mustangs. Um, I also grew up a, a Reds fan and still am. So I'd, I'd been to a few Mustangs games, um, and my brother, older brother had lived in Billings, and he would tell stories about coming to games when he was in college. <laughs> They used to have a thing. You couldn't do it anymore, but they used to have a thing called a former homer, where if a Mustangs player hit a home run, it was free beer uh, for like 10 minutes or something like that. And my brother would say, as soon as there was a fly ball, man, people just started rushing rushing to the concession stand to get in line for their free beer. But I, I was pretty familiar with the uh, Pioneer League um, kind of growing up, you know, but it, it, still, it was still great. seeing getting to see these guys in person. And and as the 2000s rolled around, the the draft was starting to become more popular and more uh, public, I guess. It used to be the draft. You didn't know who got drafted because the pro teams like to keep it a secret because uh, they didn't want to call it tipping off college coaches to go recruit these players. And so, you know, about this time, the, the draft started becoming more public. And so we... You know, we learned if there was a high draft pick coming, it was it was kind of a big deal when, when number ones used to come through town.
1: You, When you first started covering the team, Rick Burleson, a former Major League Baseball All-Star, was the manager. What was it like covering him?
0: Uh, he was great. Um, I I knew, again, Reds fan growing up. I, I knew his history. Um, I didn't know all of it. Um, I remember when he got hired, I called him up. Uh, his home in California. And he was kind of, uh, uh, kind of manicuring uh baseball field at that time. And, but he was kind of a, a hard nosed guy, right. Um, he managed to win back in, back in the early 2000s. And he was the manager. I mean, you went with a starting pitcher as long as you could. There, there really weren't any pitch counts. Uh, if you wanted to pinch hit, you could pinch hit. Um, and he was just matter of fact it's because of him that I, that I started taking tape recorders with me because he would give such long answers to his you know if you asked him about a um, why did he bunt or why did he do this um never took offense to a question he never thought you were second guessing him and he, and he took the time to explain his philosophy behind a certain play, what he was expecting to happen, or what he was hoping to happen, and so I really learned that um, I needed to take a tape recorder because I couldn't couldn't write fast enough with his, to keep up with his long answers. So he was great with me; um, gave me all the time in the world, anytime I wanted it. And uh, years later, a couple times, I've gotten a chance to go to Red Spring training. And so I'd catch up with some former Mustangs who are now Reds, and I'd ask them about Burleson, and they just all raved about how much they learned from him. Um, He was strict. Uh, He kind of demanded perfection from guys and, you know, rarely got it. (laughs) But they they all seemed to enjoy playing for him.
1: Did those long-winded explanations have an impact on the way that you viewed the game going forward?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, baseball is my favorite sport and and I grew up playing it and loved it, still do. Um, So I could see, like, if he was trying to explain something, um, why he was thinking that way. Um, It was just, what I enjoyed about talking to him is, well, for example, Chris Vileka, he had his 32-game hitting streak here uh, when Burleson was the manager. And so what I enjoyed going to is, is, you know, after getting the comments about Maleka and what he thought about Maleka's streak, just ask Rosen, you know, uh, what was your longest streak? You know, what, what is this player going through right now? And uh, he did a good job of kind of personalizing things and, um, and bringing things down to, you know, kind of the human level and, and not just talking about robots and things like that. So, You know, he had so many experiences, you know, the Bucky Dent game with the Yankees, you know, the 75 World Series. He was with the Angels. Um, You know, he had so many big game moments himself that it seemed like any situation that we came across in the Pioneer League, uh, he probably had been through or seen. Although, you know, with this level of baseball, you really do see things that, I mean, I've seen, Walk off airs for wins, walk off wild pitches for wins, you know? So, um, but he, he did a great job of, of just getting things down to, to a human level.
1: You mentioned Chris Valleca's 32 game hitting streak. He was on that 2006 Billings Mustangs team. What was it like covering that hitting streak in the moment? Because oftentimes when a guy has a hitting streak going, it's like, oh, the media is going to ruin it by putting too much pressure on it. What was it like covering that one?
0: Um, well, the, the good thing about at this level is we're the only newspaper there and TV people usually didn't stick around to the end of the games. You know, they might show up before games and do something with them. So most of these guys, when they come here are, are very uh, cooperative and Chris was no exception. Right. I mean, you could ask him, and we did ask him after every game, you know, how he was going, how he was doing it, how he was holding up. And um, he was great. The, the, the funny thing about that, and, um, like, I don't remember what game it was, but he he was, like, 0 for 2 or something like this. And, you know, it was probably in the teens or 20s of his hit streak. And he goes up for, like, his second or third at bat, and his bat is missing like the bat that he's been using this whole time. And you know how superstitious baseball players are. Um, so he had to use, I can't remember if he used somebody else's bat or just grabbed another one of his, but he ended up obviously getting a hit and extending the streak. And um, he had no idea where that bat went. And in fact, I caught up to him, you know, I talk about these trips where I went to spring training and I talked to him after one of the spring training games, he was, uh, you know, at that point, he'd been up and down with the Reds. And uh, I asked him about that hitting streak, and if he ever found out what happened to that bat, And he said he still has no idea what happened to that bat. I mean, that's just a crazy story that somehow a bat got stolen, whether it was taken by one of his teammates who tucked it away and and wanted it as a memento or or what. But uh, I don't know if the missing bat has ever been solved.
1: That's definitely quite the mystery. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, I know Chris, least last time I talked to him, he didn't have it. So uh, who knows where it's at.
1: Well, whoever's got it, they've got a really great souvenir, especially now with the history of the Pioneer League potentially. That team. 6 team, it was, it's kind of legendary. There were 11 guys, including Chris Vileka, who would go on to at least appear in the major leagues? What was it like covering that team with all of those talented guys?
0: Well, you, you knew when the season began that, that this team was going to be good because, you know, Drew Stubbs, who is the Reds' number one pick, uh, was on that team. And I think when the season started, the Mustangs had seven of the Reds' or six of the Reds' top 10 picks that year. So you knew that that team was going to be pretty loaded. And, uh, you know, Justin Turner was on that team. um, Chris Vileka, Drew Stubbs, some of the unknown guys. Logan Parker was a first baseman. He ended up with nine home runs, 51 RBIs. Danny Dorn, uh, another outfielder, wound up leading the league and hitting at three fifty-four. And I do remember that, but I had to look up. He had an OPS of one. One thousand thirty one point zero three zero that year. Uh, the team was just loaded, and it happened to be kind of in a regime that, for the for the Reds at that time, that wanted guys to stay together. So, usually, what would happen if a team ran away with a first half title like this team did? A lot of guys would get promoted because you know the parent club thinks, well, we've clinched a playoff spot, so the fans can be happy with the postseason baseball. We need to get these guys. Some experience at the Class A level, but these guys played through and stayed together through the whole season and um, that obviously was the best regular season team uh, that we've had here. I mean, it was just just unbelievable, fun to watch uh, a fun group of guys. They seemed to enjoy themselves and, and, and enjoy each other, so uh, that was just a great team to watch.
1: The Mustangs have a rich history of producing guys who have going on to the major leagues. There are guys like Joey Votto, Jay Bruce, you mentioned Justin Turner, Todd Frazier. Do any of those guys, or does anyone else that's passed through Billings specifically stand out to you as being memorable?
0: Uh, Well, all those names. I I remember uh, Edwin Encarnacion was here in 2001. He came over in a trade. Uh, The Reds sent... um, I can't remember his first name now. He was a pitcher, Bell. He was a major league pitcher to the Rangers. And the Rangers sent him this 19-year-old third baseman. Rob Edwin Bell. Rob Bell. And, um, you know, it was, if you're familiar with Edwin's play, like he was, when he was 19, he could make the fabulous play a third and then just email a routine throw. But that guy could hit and uh I I do remember specifically talking to Burleson about him and and Burleson just saying, you know, that kind of the cliche the bat just sounds different. Uh, The sound of the ball off his bat sounds different than anybody else. And that's, he was 19 when he was here. Um, Billy Hamilton stands out uh, just because of his unbelievable speed. And uh, when he was a rookie, he was a rookie here. Uh, That's when he first started to, um, Learned to switch hit. And so his first year of switch hitting, he had over he had over 300 here and stole a franchise record, I think it was 46 bases, something like that, which still stands. And he made so many great defensive plays. I remember him playing second base or shortstop. He was an infielder then. Just running out on these pop flies, uh, back to home plate, just making these over the – I mean, basically beating the outfielders to the ball, you know that the outfielders should have caught. Um, he was just he was just unreal.
1: Yeah, Billy Hamilton stole forty eight bases when he was with Billings, right. which is yeah. an unreal number to think about, especially in such a limited amount of games. I have to ask: Was Edwin Encarnacion? Do you remember? Was he doing the the Ed Wing thing on a home run? Even back then?
0: <laughs> I, don't, I, that, I don't remember it. I don't think he was. I can't say for sure, but uh, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. I'd, I probably would have noticed that. I don't think he was doing it back then. But who knows? He might have been. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, even, I even forgot he does that now, though.
1: Yeah, I, I'm wondering. I have wondering, no idea what
0: that came about.
1: I'm wondering the origin of that. i got to find out. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea. That's a good question. Um
0: another guy who stood out to me was a, a first baseman. They called him Big Bobby because he was a big guy, first baseman. You could not get a fastball past that guy, but the guy he could not hit a curveball. But he would hit some monster awesome home runs and I remember I did a I did a feature story with him and he told me he would he you know, you kinda ask these guys, um the silly questions like their favorite food and things like that. And his, his favorite food was a fried chicken sandwich. And I said, oh, a chicken sandwich? And He goes, well, no, I just take my mom's fried chicken, like a chicken breast, put it on a bun and eat it. I said, bones and all? He goes, yep, bones, you just eat around the bone. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> that guy, he could, he could hit. He could hit a fastball, not so much a curveball.
1: That sounds like a crazy feature story. Do any other features about teams, players, incidents in a game, anything like that stand out to you over the years?
0: Well, I remember uh, kind of what stands out to me is is Joey Votto because he came here as a high draft pick, you know, second round out of Canada. And um, I remember talking to – well, I used to – the Reds used to send everybody to Billings when they could, and they'd have like a three or four day uh, mini camp, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, right? Because, you know, the draft was in June, players would sign, uh, then they'd start kind of trickling into Billings. Now uh, they do it differently now. Now they all meet in Arizona, and then they just fly them all up here uh, two days before the first game. They have one practice in game. But back in those days, they would hold these like mini camps, and so I would go to all their workouts. And um, I'd arranged to talk to Votto after this workout anyway, and it just happened that they were doing some infield fly drills or, you know, pop-up drills. And, you know, it was was a nice sunny Montana June day, you know, and Burleson would send up these pop flies and uh, Votto just totally, totally biffed one. Uh, He was playing first base. And, uh, Burleson just got on him like ask where are your sun? why aren't you wearing sunglasses you know and and just he just lit into him and uh so I asked Wado about that after after the workout and uh he goes you know I have so much to learn about this game he says uh from footwork to base running to wearing sunglasses because he was just a raw kid he was like 19 too you know and um he could hit. You know, even then he could hit and the Reds knew he could hit. But he didn't, you know, being from Canada, he hadn't played a whole lot of baseball games, actual game experience. And so he knew he had to work on the little things. Uh, and and if you followed Votto's career, I mean, you know that he is detail-oriented. And uh, if he knows he needs to work on something, he's going to work on that. And You know, sure enough, it turns out he would be an MVP one day and and a uh, gold glove caliber first baseman some season. So I, I'll just never forget that time just because we knew Vado was going to be a good hitter, but, man, he had he had a lot of work to do as as far as defense, base running, um, just playing the game, you know. And, and we grew up in America and think it's kind of just second nature or instinct to, to kids who have been playing all their lives. But uh, I think Vado had to work at some of that stuff.
1: Yeah, Joey Votto is widely considered one of the most detail-oriented, thoughtful players in Major League Baseball. What are some of your other favorite memories from covering the team over all these years?
0: Well, um, probably one of them for sure is is Votto's 2003 season uh, just because of Jim Paddock, um, pitcher for the Mustangs. Mustangs clinched the championship that year on a Jim Paddock no-hitter in the championship game, which turned out to be the clinching championship game. I mean, you don't see guys get out of the fifth inning anymore, right? And I had to go back, and I I looked up my old story. He threw 104 pitches. He walked two guys. Uh, The Mustangs turned one double play, so he he only faced 28 hitters. But, you know, they don't let a rookie league pitcher throw – I mean – I can't remember the last year the Mustangs have let a rookie pitcher throw more than seventy five pitches in a game. You know, some some years it's been as low as they're just gonna set it at fifty. And he threw a hundred and four. I mean they don't even let major league pitchers throw a hundred and four pitches anymore, you know? Um so that that will always be probably my my best memory just because I you know, I was sitting in the press box with myself the guy who ran the scoreboard and then the official score. And I don't know if you've ever covered a no hit game, but you know, around the fifth inning you start thinking, Oh, we could see a no hitter and then around the sixth inning, seventh inning, you're like, Well, if we if we get a hit, let's make it a clean one. You know, and by probably by the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, uh, you're kind of feeling sorry for the official score, right? Because that's a lot of pressure on that guy, especially on a on a home. You're at home. Um it's uh it's kind of kind of nerve-wracking even just covering the game
1: yeah no hitters are something special i've been a part of a few you know in my younger days playing and then as a spectator as well minor league baseball is you know it's kind of a weird wild workplace what are some of your wildest craziest minor league baseball related stories
0: you know, I don't know if I I have a whole about the, the mustangs. Are a pretty um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess traditional franchise. They they would they never did the uh, you know dizzy bat races. You know they bring in things like the superstars if you're familiar with them or um, stuff like that. They never brought in, rarely brought in any half. or Half inning entertainment. I, I do remember the Mustangs GM Gary Roller, who's still the GM. He would tell me Burleson would all, like if he had if he was gonna do something like in between innings, he wanted to to give Burleson a heads up so that you know just say the pitcher might need a few more warm up tosses or whatever. But Roller would say Burleson would always say, just don't turn it into a clown show. <laughs> and so. The Mustangs have always been kind of a traditional, you know, you come in, you're going to see baseball, and that's about it. Um, so there, there really hasn't been um, a whole lot of stuff like that. Um, that's a good question. I'd, I'd have to I'd have to rack my brain, but nothing along those lines stands out just because um, when you walk through those gates at First Cobb Field and now Dealer Park, uh, you were going to get a baseball game, and that's pretty much it. So, uh, you know, I didn't see too many, too many weird things. The Reds run a tight, tight ship with their minor leaguers. They don't, they don't put up with a whole lot. So it was, it was pretty much straight and narrow, I guess, um, that I saw. Who knows, you know, <laughs> what I didn't see, but it was pretty much just baseball.
1: That's fair. There's. Nothing quite like going to a game at Dealer Park. It's certainly one of the best venues I've ever been to in minor league baseball. How do you think you've mentioned a few things in terms of how the game's managed and the game is played. How do you think the league has changed over the last twenty years or so? Um, I would
0: say it's kind of I don't know if more relaxed is the right word, but um, even though when these these you know player directors and player development directors and people come to town and you talk to them and and they say well winning is a part of development it you just know that that's not their first concern like like i say 2001 games were played to be won and i mean just like i said paddock threw 104 pitches i mean that's you know, naturally, you're not going to take him out with a no-hitter, but I think still if he'd only given up one or two runs with that many pitches. Burleson would have, would have let him go. And then, you know, Dan O'Brien became general manager of the Reds. can't remember the exact years. But he implemented, and I think it was for rookie league for sure, in Class A, I think the first year of Class A, below a um, Class A. Uh, Mustang's hitters could not swing at a pitch until they got a first strike. And he was emphasizing, which is probably ahead of his time. Now he was emphasizing from the pitching staff: pitch to contact. Don't worry about the strikeout. Get guys out as soon as you can. And I think from that time on, um, it's become more about well, starting pitchers are going to get fifty innings. We're going to. He also did the tandem piggybacks. So two pitchers would be paired together. One guy would start one week. The next week, the next guy would start. And the the guy who started the week before would be the main reliever of that game. So that's when it started becoming um, more about development and just getting these guys innings and at bats, you know what I mean? Rather than worrying about the the scoreboard. And uh, I don't know if fans have taken, I think they've taken notice of that. Um, The the support has still been great at Mustangs games, Um, but you have a little different crowd now that, when they moved in, you know, Cobb Field probably, when we played at the old Cobb Field, which was an old ballpark, uh, had the old bleacher seats. The reserve seatings were just these metal fold out chairs that were rusty. And so you got the diehard baseball fans uh, in those games, and, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine hundred a night. And then in 2008, right, they built this $10 million ballpark, moved into Dealer Park, and You have regular reserve seating, and it's a nice ballpark. And you get 3,000 people there a night, but it's kind of more of a social night out rather than going to and cheering on a baseball game. You know what I mean? And so I I think over time, it's it's become something to do for the fans because I've also noticed that on the field, it's become well, let's get this guy this many at-bats, this guy this many innings, and the score will be what the score is going to be, right? So I think that's been the biggest change. It doesn't seem to be – I don't want to say real baseball because it is real baseball, but they're not necessarily – the first priority isn't necessarily to win, if if you know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, those are all fair points, I would say. Well, I want to wrap it up here. I really appreciate your time. I'll end it with, what do you think, the Billings Mustangs' impact has been on the community, and what do you think it brings to the city of Billings to have the Mustangs?
0: Well, I, what what stands out to me is that oh, I remember when, um, it took a while to to get the levy passed to build Dealer Park, and when that finally came to be. We, in the paper, we decided to run a thing called Cobbfield Chronicles, and we asked people to send in all their memories of, of Cobbfield because, like I say, it, it's been around for a long, long time. And people would just tell us, you know, like, I grew up at Cobbfield going to Mustangs Games. We had uh, one woman wrote in to us and uh, said her husband, who turned out to be her husband, um, proposed to her at a Mustangs game. Um, you know, minor league baseball is just such a great, especially for towns of this size, they're just a, a great gathering spot for people. And if the, uh, the Pioneer league shutters, um, uh, it's just going to be just a huge loss. Cause you know, 30, what 38 nights of the year, you could go to a Mustangs game and, Three thousand other people are going to be out there on a nice Montana evening, taking in a pretty high-quality baseball. And for all those reasons that people like baseball, it's you know leisurely. You can have good conversations with your friends or family. Um, I don't know. It's just going to be such a huge loss, and um, I don't know how you how you fill that void, especially. You know, the Mustangs have been around since the 1940s, um, been affiliated with the the Reds since 1974. So as you know, the players that have come and gone through here that you can now follow at the major league level, I just think think it's going to ultimately end up, major leagues are going to ultimately end up paying the price of people in this part of the country won't have a connection to major league baseball anymore, right? I mean, you just won't. So it's it's going to be a big void to fill if, if indeed this is the end.
1: The Mustangs are certainly steeped in tradition. They've got a rich history. Not many minor league teams ever have had a team like they did in 2006 where 11 guys okay. go on to crack the big leagues. It certainly will be sad if, if yep. and seemingly when the uh, Pioneer League Loses their affiliation. Mike Scherding, the Billings Mustangs beat writers since the summer of two thousand one. Thank you so much for your time, and really appreciate you joining me.
0: Yeah, thank you, David. This has been great, and you helped me help me jar some memories. So I I thank you for that. You know, you cover these teams for so long, and sometimes unfortunately they, they blend right in one right in the other. So. Um, It was fun to, to take that walk with you. Thank you.
1: All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Mike Sherding. He's been covering the league, the Pioneer League, and the Billings Mustangs for almost 20 years. I know he's as disappointed as I am about no Pioneer League baseball this summer. It truly is. It truly is missed this summer. I'm certainly disappointed. No minor league baseball anywhere. I'm grateful that Major League Baseball is starting back. Opening day is tonight. So if you're listening to this episode on July 23rd, you're enjoying maybe some Major League Baseball in the evening after you've listened to this episode in the morning. I really appreciate Mike. Like I said on the last episode, he did help me get this onto 406 mtsportscom So if you found the podcast that way, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're listening to every episode. And I'm always available for feedback at my Twitter account at Mr. David Graff, or anywhere you can really find me. I'm I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to listen to any feedback. And Mike has been a good guy to bounce some ideas off for this podcast. He's pointed me in some directions for guys to interview here for the next season of the podcast. I'm hoping to have it out soon. I'm working on it right now. I've been interviewing guys as often as I can, trying to track guys down. If you know guys that played in Major League Baseball and in the Pioneer League, don't hesitate to point them my way. I'd love to talk to them about their time playing in the Pioneer League and their baseball careers overall. So... Please do. And if you have any suggestions of guys that I should try to contact, don't hesitate to reach out as well. The final episode of the podcast first season here will feature James Loney, who played for the Great Falls Dodgers and was an 11-year Major League Baseball veteran. He spent most of his time with the Los Angeles Dodgers, manning first base, but he also played a few years with the Tampa Bay Rays, and so we got into all of that, some of his MLB highlights as well. He was a fast riser in the minor league system, in the Dodgers system. He was a first-round draft pick out of Houston, Texas. And he didn't even finish out his first year of professional baseball in Great Falls. He had already moved up, moved up the ladder. So we talked about that adjustment as well and what he's up to currently. It's a good episode can't wait for you guys to listen to it and to finish out the season with that one strong that's coming out on tuesday july 28th so please look forward to that and then i can't wait i'm still working i can't wait honestly it's going to be a blast working on this second season hoping to get that around to you as quickly as i possibly can gonna do nine episodes a season here so Looking forward to that episode to finish out the first season and can't wait for you guys to listen to what I've been up to working on this second season. A lot of great guests again. I really appreciate all of the support. Everyone who's liked, rated, subscribed, anything you can do to support the podcast. It is meaningful to me and I really appreciate it. It's exceeded my expectations, so I really appreciate everyone for listening, and it's just been a blast doing this project. It really has. So can't say it enough. Thank you to all the people that have gone to the link and donated a few shekels as well. It's very much appreciated. And if you haven't rated or subscribed to the podcast wherever you're enjoying the podcast, please do. That way more baseball fans can find this podcast and enjoy what I've been talking about with these guys. I just want to say thank you again to my friend Turnt Kenny for the music. Really appreciate everything that he's done for me. So if you enjoy this music, go check out some of his other stuff. And I'll be back next week, Tuesday, July 28th, talking with former Great Falls Dodger and 11-year MLB first baseman, James Lone.